All right, good day to you. How y'all doing? Doing all right? Good stuff. Welcome to Village Church. If you are new, special welcome to you. My name is Mark. I am the senior pastor, which is a very strange title for a guy as young and hot as I am. But anyways, you want this Psalm shirt, don't you? Yeah, well, too bad. All right, so Psalm 1, that's where we are. And uh, man, uh, the book of Psalms. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're doing book one, the first uh, 41 chapters. Uh, the book of Psalms is actually broken up into five major books, kind of like the book, uh, the five books of Moses, the Torah. Uh, from, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and people compiled it probably uh, four to five hundred years before the time of Jesus. Leaders in Jerusalem had gathered it so that you can have these books, these prayers. Literally, uh, the word psalm uh, comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, psalmos, which means a song, to, to, to sing a song, a praise, uh, a worship noise, that kind of thing. And so it's a collection of songs, of prayers, to reorient your heart and your mind and your life away from the things of the world toward the things of God consistently and constantly so they compiled them in a book so that they could have them in worship because they were living in Babylon and in the midst of Egypt and all of these things that they constantly they would gather things. Uh, when they lived in Egypt, of course, before the, the Psalms were written, they would gather the five books of Moses and they would read them uh, the early parts in Genesis and they would tell those stories around the campfire about God who created them because they were washing their, reimagining their imaginations and their brains away from the empires of the world, away from the worship of money and sex and fame and, and relationships and all of these things to go, we've got to remind ourselves who God is constantly so our hearts reorient around the things of God. That's what the book of Psalms is. It's 150 chapters of let's get together and rewash our brains. Let's rewash our imaginations because you and I live in the midst of empires today, constantly fighting for your attention. And so these are songs and it's art and it's beautiful. And that's the art works on us on a different level than just prose, than just cognitive ideas, than just sentences. You know that when you read a good book, it's the reason I've read the Lord of the Rings a hundred times. Why? Because there's something that makes my heart sore about it. All right. It's the reason you watch movies and you cry, you know, at that uh, interstellar at that scene where he's been away from his kids for 25 years and then he turns on the video and he starts to watch a replay of his kids talking to him for 25 years and their little kids and then his son's talking to him about he had a son and he holds the son up and then the son passes away and then he buries him and then he's giving him and then it's 25 years of videos and you got the McConaughey scene you know that scene if you've seen it he's like <laughs> and his face is like and he's crying and then I'm crying because I'm thinking about my life all right might just be me but the point is that's what art does to us. It makes us cry. It makes us feel something when you watch Les, Les Mis and they're singing, there's merciful the people sing to do wrongs of angry men. All right, you're like, yeah, I, I'm jacked up. I want to go fight a revolution. I got nothing to revolt against, but I feel like doing it. This is what art does. My daughter uh, is a musician. She writes, she sings, she plays. I walked in her bedroom the other day and she sings stuff that she creates herself. But the other day, she was taking a psalm and working it to music. That's literally what it is. All right, listen, for a thousand years, the book of Psalms, it's the middle of your Bible, so open it up to Psalm 1. It has been used a thousand years. 
It was used to teach people how to pray, how to think, how to worship, how to sing, how to have allegiance. We don't do that anymore. But it was literally given to teach people how to pray. This is how Jesus learned how to pray and connect to the God of the universe with his heart and his mind. And I'm beginning to think this is something I haven't done. And as I've studied this, I was reading tons of commentaries about the Psalms. I'm like, man, I need to actually use this to teach my kids how to pray. Because the reality is we think a prayer because we're classic modern evangelicals and we're like, no, prayer has to come from your heart and it has to be your words and you have to be able to say, dee, dee, dee. but that's not necessarily true. All the time through history, God has shown people, here's how to pray. You wonder why Jesus constantly is citing the Bible when he's living life. People come up, ask him a question. The devil tempts him with something and he's spouting off Deuteronomy. They come to him in the garden. He's praying the Psalms on the cross. We do what he's doing. He's praying the Psalms back to God because sometimes it's all you can do is take the Psalms and say them back to God because it's going to teach you how to relate to God. And it's going to teach you how to relate to people. It's going to teach you how to relate to money and suffering and pain and joy, all of these things. And so it's not just about, will you just come up with your own words about them? No, the Psalms would challenge that and go, listen, we don't need to hear you say, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, every two seconds, because you don't actually know how to talk to God. So you have these rhythms and these Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God. That's like, what are we talking about? That's classic modern evangelical saying, well, you just have to, it has to just come from you and you're a special person. The Psalms break in and go, I gave you a book here. You want to know how to pray? Pray these. And when you're in a, mo- a, a, a point of a suffering in your life and you don't know what to say to God, I've given you a book. 70% of this book is lament. It's like life sucks and I don't know what to do about it. And here's the Psalms. This is what it is. It's beautiful. That's life though. That's what I love about the book of Psalms because that is life. One minute he's all excited and jacked up about life and the next minute he's lamenting and he's going, what happened? But that's your life. The business deal went good. You got the new kitchen. You got the new car. Everything's great. And then the spouse gets a diagnosis and then the kid gets sick and then the money goes away. And you're like, what just happened? I thought I was a good person. I thought I was being faithful. What's going on? And here, David, who wrote a bunch of these Psalms, they don't know who wrote all these Psalms. Asaph, right? A bunch, all these lists of people, and then a lot of them don't have authors. But the point is, one minute they're jacked, and they're like, life is so good. I'm loving it. I'm at the cottage. I'm doing a vacation. I'm doing all this stuff. And then the next minute, there's pain. It's suffering. And they're sitting there going, I'm faithful, and my business hasn't been successful. I'm faithful and my class isn't going good, whatever. But that unrighteous, wicked fool, why is his business so good? All right, picture it, those of you who are realtors, which is half our congregation, right? So some of you are like, my God, like I met uh, uh, someone yesterday. I was at my uh, wife's market. She was doing it. Someone had paid to uh, provide people with coffee. And so I'm wearing this jacket and it's a realtor's jacket and I'm kind of logo out. I'm dee, dee, dee. And another realtor came up and they didn't like that. Right? They're like, why are you wearing those logos? I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, and realtors, they, they, like, they like each other, but they don't like each other. All right? So the reality is you are all kind of gone. Why? I've been faithful. Why isn't my realtor company killing it? Why does this guy post five times a week that he just sold a house and I haven't sold a house in six months and I can't eat, but I've been godly and I know I'm more godly than him. And that's how we begin to think because we think in karma. But the Psalms actually speak to that a little bit and go, you know what? Yeah, karma's not real. Like if you get sick, it's not because you've been unfaithful. And if you flourish, it's not because you've been faithful. But there is a little, here's what we're gonna see. There's a little bit of a cause and effect in life. 
And through the book of Psalms, we're going to see there actually is a connection to what you do and how you think and how your life turns out. It's not all just, I don't know what's going to happen. God's going to figure out. The Psalms put it back in your court and say, you got to figure these things out. And so it's art. It works on us on so many levels. It inspires us. Here's what Martin Luther said. The book of Psalms is a little Bible. It's a little Bible. It's literally a summary, he said, of the Old Testament. John Calvin said this, what riches are contained in this treasure? I have been wont to call this book an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. This is a mirror for your soul, this book. It's gonna reflect back your life in such a special, crazy way. And as we go through them, it's going to change some stuff about you if you're open to it. If you just close yourself to it, <clears throat> the Psalms are going to bounce off. You've got any Philip Yancey talked about the idea that, listen, everywhere in the New Testament, they quote the Psalms. The Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. It's also the thing that is most quoted by Jesus himself. This was the Bible that Jesus read. It washed over his imagination, his soul, his life. It's how he learned how to do everything. And so Philip Yancey actually says, I have a confession to make. Now, this is probably some of you, all right, because it's certainly me. He says this, for years, I avoided the book of Psalms. I knew that many Christians looked upon it as their favorite biblical book, that the church had incorporated these poems into public worship. And to this day, many editions of the New Testament include the Psalms as well. You know, those little red Bibles that you get handed out to you, right? They have the New Testament and then they have the Psalms. It's like, why? And he says, as if they represented an indispensable core of our faith. Yet, hard as I tried, I could never get excited about actually reading the Psalms. Yet one summer, I read through all of them. Every morning they greeted me. And all of a sudden, I started seeing life through their eyes. And I must now say, after 20 years, they are without a doubt my favorite book in the Bible. Because they're going to connect to your soul and your life and what you do with everything about you. And some of this, it's going to make you happy because many of you, your feedback to me is, Mark, man, you inspire me. Your sermons are inspiring, but you never tell me like how. Like I'm waiting with my pen and my notepad and fill in the blanks and I want to, but you never like go, here's the six points and they all start with the letter S and here we go. And you never, I can't post your stuff up on my fridge and go, these are the three things I need to do this week. The Psalms are going to help you, all right? They're going to, because they're going to tell you how. They're not going to tell you what. They're not going to tell you why. They're actually going to tell you the how of actual life. Okay, so Psalm 1. We're going to hit three verses because that's all I have time for. But we're going to finish it next week. Here's the deal. But I won't do that. I will hit, I will cover a psalm every week, I promise. All right? And even if I can't, I will. But just this one is two parts, all right? This one's two parts, okay. Because it's an introduction of the whole book of Psalms. That's the way Psalm 1 actually works, scholars say. So a lot of people have titled it differently, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the way of life and the way of doom. And so here's this Psalm. It's gonna tell you there are two options in life. Now pay attention, listen up. There are two options in life, the way of life or the way of doom. The way of prosperity and joy and happiness at the deepest level of transcendence and the way of despair, and God is going to answer. Like if, I, if you came up to me and said, 
hey man, I got one of two paths to go down. One of them is gonna lead me toward joy and delight and happiness and success and flourishing and fulfillment. And the other one's gonna lead me to darkness and pain and suffering and tragedy. And I wanna know which path to take, which door A or B. And I said, oh, don't, 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 don't worry. I know the answer. And I started to talk. You would probably shut everything else up, right? Like you would go, okay, dude, turn down the TV. This guy's gonna tell me an answer to the most profound question I've got. There are only two paths and I gotta figure out which one to go down. So turn off the TV, put away the magazines, put away the Twitter, put away the Instagram account and God is about to answer which path I'm gonna go down in order to find truth and happiness and joy and flourishing versus destruction and perishing in my life. So this is what Psalm 1 is. It's literally the answer to that question. He's about to answer that question. So now we lean in and we listen. Psalm 1, verse 1. Here we go. Starts this way. Blessed. Blessed. Okay, stop. That word is crazy. All right. It's, um, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, it, it, it's the way Jesus starts his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first words out of his mouth. Makarios. It's... Uh, 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 blessed, you know, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, blessed are the meek. You know, blessed are the, 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 the hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he gives all these Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's kind of starting it the way the Psalms start. He's kind of doing a new Psalms thing. And he's saying, I've got a way of blessedness. And literally the word in the Hebrew and the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament is the word happiness. Now, that's what's beautiful about this book. It's just going to connect to you right away. It's going to connect to your actual life where some of you, you got to realize whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. The book of Psalms is like for you. It's going to connect to your life in a way you can't even imagine. It right off the bat goes to your deepest motivation in life, which is your own happiness. We can't deny that. We've talked about this before. The idea that everything you do, every decision you make is about your own happiness. And so the work that you go after, your relationships, your family, your money, whatever, it's all about the new stuff you buy, the promotions and vacations. It's all about what you love. It's all about your happiness. It's all about you feeling good. That's the whole point. We are in our heart of hearts. We are hedonists. We go after pleasure and delight. And one of the great things about the book of Psalms is it's not going to push against that and say it's wrong to be a hedonist. It's going to say, where do you get your hedonism actually fulfilled? It's going to say, I got happiness for you. I know how to make you happy. It's not going to say, hey, you shouldn't vie after happiness. That's just natural. God built that in you to vie after happiness. You got to go after it. It's the reason you do everything. Listen, According to my genes, my grandfather's 96. My other grandfather died when, I was nine, when he was 95. Listen, I should live to at least 95, maybe 100. That's according to my genes. It depends on what I do with bacon, though. <laughs> and that's the point. See, do you know that there's an island in Japan? All right, you can Google this later because I think some of you don't believe me on some of this stuff. You think I make this stuff up. You know there's an island in Japan where... A, the largest amount of people live to 100 in the world per capita, right? And it's just, just this island of Japan and people are living there. You know what they're doing? They're eating fresh fish and rice every day. Listen, we know how to live to 100, but none of you are going to do it. Why? Because bacon. That's why. <laughs> right? That's why, man. It tastes too good. You get it all crispy. It's in the grease, whatever. Okay, so... That's literally, you're going after your own happiness. 
and the person you married and the clothes you wear and the job you have, it's all about happiness. And God has the ultimate solution to talk about your happiness. The reason you tell your kids that they're doing a good job, the reason you fight for them to have good grades, it's because you want them to be happy, happy, happy. That's the reality. Everybody wants to be happy all the time. And so God gives us a way to be happy. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, it's interesting. God's gonna lay out a way of happiness and he's going to say that there's a cause and effect between what you do. Look at this. Walks. What you do. There's a cause and effect. So notice, right off the bat, it's walk, it's stand, it's sit. What are these? These are actions. Meaning, right off the bat, God comes to you in the Psalms and says, I'm not asking you what your philosophical, theological conclusion is on the immutability of God or the omniscience or the omnipotence or the sovereignty or the ecclesiological, soteriological, eschatological, many, many logicals. He's not asking you what a 2,000 years of church history has been writing big, fat books about, about theological, all that's important, but he starts out by asking you what you do, what you do with your life. How do you walk? How do you actually live? And there's a cause and effect between how you live and what your end is going to be. Now, I'm not saying that in a prosperity gospel way. I'm not saying there's some kind of promise. If you're a really good person, God's going to give you a bunch of money and nice cars and health and all of that. But there is a point of, deli- uh, 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 of connection between what you do in your life and how your life turns out. You can't deny that. If you're a positive person at work, if you work hard, if you show up early and you give it your all, you're gonna get ahead in life more than if you just come in late and it's all about you and the woof of your own soul and what you wanna try to accomplish in life. And it's all about you, 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 you. You're not gonna get ahead in life like that. This is why when we take our staff away, oftentimes we do a lot of spiritual things, but then I get up. We'll invite someone to come and they take us through this, the, 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 the gospels and they take us through all this thing. And then the last day, usually it's me up for 40 minutes. The last talk was called 100 Rules of Work. And it was just, here's how to properly work. Because the reality is some of us are lazy. Not our staff, but you. Right? Some of you are lazy. And you think your laziness by the grace of God is gonna lie. Listen, man, you can't be a lazy farmer. You can't just hope that the cows milk themselves or whatever, however that works, because they'll explode. Don't Google that. I don't actually know that's true. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, is, you can't be lazy in life. And so God says, listen, there's a cause and effect. If you follow the way that God has laid out certain things in regard to work and sexuality, relationships and money and family and marriage, then your life is going to turn out better in the long run than it would if you didn't. And so he's laid out a way all the way through the book of Psalms to actually have that life versus the other kind of life. Now, it's not as if everything's going to turn out perfect. It's a matter of flipping your definition of what he's going to talk about is prospering in a minute. It's a matter of Um, understanding what that whole concept would be. It's not that you're going to live forever. It's not that you're going to have a great time in life. It's not that everything is going to go well. It's if you follow my ways, ultimately, eternally, you're going to prosper versus perish. Those are the two options in life. 
prosper or perish. And prosper can mean, I remember listening to a preacher and he made this point really well. He got up and he said, this week at my church, two missionaries who were in Africa, 86 years old and 79 years old, two women who'd given their life to Jesus, never got married, served people of Africa for their whole life. The brakes gave out in their car and they flew over the edge of a mountain into eternity and died. And some people look at that and they say it's a tragedy. But I say to you, he said, that's not a tragedy. He says, you want to know what a tragedy is? And then he opened up Reader's Digest and he read a story about two people, 55 years old. They got retired. They moved down to Punta Guda, Florida, got a 30-foot boat and collect seashells for the rest of their life on the beach. And he said, friends, that's a tragedy. That is a tragedy because they're going to stand before God one day and they're going to say, he's going to say, what did you do with your life? And they're going to go, shells? Do you like, do you like my shells? That's what, you got prosperity wrong if you think that means you live really long and a big flourishing life and a lot of flashy stuff and everything goes well in your life. Man, you can prosper, as he's going to say, and die at 30, as some people in our church have, or younger. Because a tragedy is living your whole life and not understanding what the God of the universe has for you and not doing it. Not doing it, knowing it, but not doing it. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to bust this up into, into two options. He's going to say, um, you, can, you can be the person who obeys all of this, seed of scoffers, uh, uh, or you can be someone who delights in the Lord. There's, there's, there's two kinds of people. There's those who are going to perish and those who are going to prosper. Look at the rest of it. He's like a man planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Okay, that's someone. But there's another option so on and so forth, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's only two options, prosper or perish, prosper or perish, prosper or perish. And some of us in our modern world, we're like, we don't like these two options. It feels so absolute. It feels so uh, just, just cold, black and white. We don't like black and white in our culture. We're postmoderns. We're post-enlightenment. We like to think of third options and fourth options when we're in the middle and we're kind of in and we're kind of out. That's not the way God works. He says, you're here or you're here. There's only two paths. And we could go, yeah, but we like the New Testament. See, this is why I don't like going left of Matthew in these series, Mark. I don't like the Old Testament. The Old Testament's so weird, all right? I like Jesus because Jesus was so nice and he was meek and he was mild and he hung out with everybody and everybody loves him. See, that's what I like. Jesus likes third ways. No, go read the Sermon on the Mount. He basically affirms this point and he says, there are only two paths. One path leads to life and the other path leads to destruction, and the gate and the path that leads to destruction is wide, and many find it, but the way that leads to life is narrow, and very few find it. That's Jesus. That's not the Old Testament. Jesus is simply affirming what the Psalms lay out here, that listen to me, there's only two ways, man. There's only two ways. There's the way God lays out life, or the way that you want to lay out life. And definitively, you are either the righteous if you follow the ways of God, and he's laid that out for you in the Bible. This is the face of God for us now. This is why in verse 2, he says this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's not in the law of you. 
is that the scriptures now define everything about your life for you. And it changes you at an affections level. It changes not what you do, but what you want to do. And now you define your life this way rather than the ways of the world. That's his whole point. He says, those are your two options, man. You can live your life the way you want to live your life, but you get your heart taken by the scriptures and you're going to live your life in a whole other way. Listen, my wife and I dated for five years. It would have been very easy to sleep together because that's what we wanted. The law of who? The law of ourself. But a couple years before, I'd become a Christian. And when I became a Christian, I took the Bible seriously and I went, okay, this is God's actual instruction of how to live a life. And I want to prosper rather than perish. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off. And man, she was coming at me, man. She was like, she's handsy. All right. And she was up in it. And I was like, no, get away from me, girl. And her parents, the first month that we were dating, her parents went away to Africa. Africa. All right. That means at no point are they going to walk in. That would have been easy, bro. But I just stayed away from the house. Or give a little kissy kissy and then run, right? Like Joseph, she'd be holding on to my clothes. I'd run out the door, buck naked, get in my 88 Grand Am, drive home. Why? Because I wanted to live my life by the law of the Lord rather than the law of myself. And in the long run, after we're married, it's better, man. It's prosper. It just is better. And I know you don't think that. I know you think you've figured out what to do. You haven't figured out what to do because God is smarter than you on his worst day. He knows what to do. He knows how to prosper you. It's not material. It's, it's some of it's material sometimes in this life. Some of you are gonna live a life following the law of the Lord and he's gonna make you prosperous materially. And then you gotta be faithful at that. And some of you are going to be just as godly and you're going to have nothing in the bank. Because prosper means so much more than a boat and a nice house and health. It means those things at times. And we got to praise God for that. There's no problem going, man, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. I have been. I feel very blessed in my life with the things God has given me. But he's given me these things as gifts from him, as James 1 said. Every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven from the Father of lights given to you. It ain't you. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you worked it out. It's not because your karma's good. You can talk about yourself as blessed. Just make sure you define blessing the right way. Because if you lose that car and you lose that spouse. I talked to someone yesterday. They're faithful to Jesus. They love Jesus. They got married five years in. Husband cheated a bunch of times started not to love Jesus anymore, walked away from Jesus, cheated on her, left her. She's now devastated. But man, she has Jesus as a treasure. She looked me in the face. Still blessed, man. My circumstances suck, but I'm still blessed in the sense of a transcendent reality where the God of the universe has shown his grace on me in life. See, it all depends. So here's what he's trying to lay out. He's trying to say there's different ways you can live. There's a way of the wicked. Now, it's very interesting that the whole thing starts with this word. Blessed is the man who walks not. I love this word, not. Um, you know, in our culture, we love positive things, right? We're like, you know, we react against religion and rules and we go, you know, Christianity is not about religion. It's not about rules. It's about just living in grace and walking with God in the cool of the day and it's all relational. It's great. There's no, you know, all the rules that tell you you can't do this, you can't do that. That's all so old. Listen, 
There are times in life, you need fences, man. You need guardrails. You need the ability. He actually starts by saying, you want to know what the blessed life looks like? You want to know where your life goes if you're going to prosper? I'll tell you, it starts with a knot. It starts with a, I got a rule. I got some stuff you can't do. In our mall culture, we're like, oh, we don't like that. We like all the positive things. I was just away in San Diego this week. I uh, go down once a year. There's a group of 10 pastors who have churches that are large that go down and sit under the teachings of my mentor, Larry Osmore. There's a church of about 15,000 people in San Diego. And we just sit and learn. We just bring them the stuff we're wrestling with. We take notes. We figure it out. We hang out together. And one of the fights we got in, 10 guy, 10 pastors, all right, we start fighting. And they're like, Mark, you know what? Uh, I said, you know, God, if you're going to fully preach God and the counsel of God, you can't just talk about God as a nice old uncle who loves everybody and winks his eyes at our little sins and he's just happy you give him some attention. You got to understand that God is love, yes, but God also has wrath. God is angry at sin. And they go, no, he's not. That's so Old Testament, bro. You don't even understand. He's not like that. I'm like, really? Don't you understand that a God of wrath is necessary to complete the meaning of the cross? Because in Romans 3, it says that the cross, what Jesus did on the cross was a propitiation, which means that the God was angry and he had to fulfill and mete out his wrath on something so as to be satisfied. And Jesus took the wrath of God to fully satisfy it so it doesn't remain on you, which is John chapter 3. And y'all kind of start doing, yeah, but that's not fun to preach. I'm like, what? If people understand the wrath of God, if people understand that there are some stuff that he doesn't want us to do, that makes the cross all more glorious. That's the point. That's what Paul's whole argument in uh, Galatians 3 is. The law built up transgressions, but then a man came and he took the curse of the law on himself as one person in the cross rose from death, took the wrath of God himself so you don't have to feel it. That's his whole point. So he starts out with a knot. There's some stuff God doesn't want you to do. Why? Why would he say there's stuff he doesn't want you to do? For the same reason that you tell your kids that there's stuff you don't want them to do. Yesterday, at my wife's market she was doing, I had my eight-year-old, Bella, she's like, hey, dad, I said, you can't just run around this market. There's 500 people in this room. You can't just go off and do your own thing. By the way, she was holding my credit card, which made me nervous because it was ice cream. And I said, no, you can't just run around because you're gonna get stolen. And she's like, well, and I, daddy, I can. I said, you can't, why? Because for the same reason, God lays out things for you. Why? Because honey, you're wicked. And you're a sinner. Oh, they're so cute, these little kids. They're so perfect. Wicked! I took the kids to the ball. I took uh, eight kids to the bowling alley on a break yesterday. We go to this bowling alley. If you want to be convinced of the depravity of humankind, just go to a bowling alley. The kids are sitting there whipping balls all over the place. At one point, there was like a weird shark thing, and three kids are like riding the shark. And the people are coming over, you can't do that. Yelling and screaming, the people they are like, bah, it was chaos. Wicked. That's why there's some knots. G.K. Chesterton said, be very careful if you're gonna pull down a fence to ask the question why the fence was built in the first place. As a culture, you wanna pull fences down in regard to sexuality? You wanna pull fences down into the way that you work and do family and raise money? You wanna do all of that? You better ask the question, why God built fences in the first place. 
And so he starts off with the fence. And he says, blessed is the man who walks not in what? The counsel of the wicked. Now, picture this. Who are your friends? Who counsels you? What podcasts do you listen to? What movies do you allow to affect your very worldview and your mind and your brain and your heart? Because there is wicked and there are sinners and blessed is the man who does not actually sit in the counsel of the wicked. Think about that for a second. Brian Walsh says these words. Empires, now listen to this. Empires, like we live in an empire today. The empire of modern Canadian that, that constantly gives you, through every form of media, gives you definitions of reality. And you gotta figure out how you can stay focused in on the God of the universe versus all the definitions of reality that surround you. And every day that's a fight, but you live in those. And in the old times, they used to, and they still do, they would promote the values of the empire that you lived in through lots of things. Uh, Media, plays, books, currency. What would be written on coins? Caesar is God. If you hold a coin all the time that promotes something to you, over time, your imagination begins to believe it. Even in Canada, we've got money. Remember the old $5 bills? Well, if you guys walk around with $5 bills right now, there's that, there's a little tiny print and it's, it's got a kid playing hockey. And it says, you know, my childhood was defined by three things, the church house, the hockey rink and the schoolyard. But my real life was defined by the hockey rink. That's the Canadian currency preaching at what are the values? Education, hockey, God, hockey. And we're walking around with that money. That's preaching at my kid. That hockey is more important than God. That's, and so here's what Brian Walsh says. This is, empires maintain their sovereignty over you, not only by establishing a monopoly of markets, political structures, and military might, but also by monopolizing, listen to this, the imagination of their subjects. Indeed, vanquished peoples are not really subjects of the empire until their imagination has been taken captive. As long as people harbor dreams of a social reality alternative to the empire that they live in, their liberated imaginations keep them free. By the way, I think that's what coming to church is. That's what reading the Psalms is. It gets your imagination to be truly free from the empire's sovereignty over you, to remind you of what real humanity is. And you sing about the truth of Jesus versus all the pressures of the empire around you that want you to be defined by them. And then he says, and until that imagination is broken, domesticated and reshaped in the image of the empire, the people are still free. That's the beauty of it. You don't walk in the counsel of the wicked Your counsel, what you fill your brain, your mind with, is not stuff of wickedness if you're the blessed man. It's stuff from the law of the Lord. That's what he's saying. That's what you meditate on. That's what defines reality for you. And then he says, uh, nor stands in the way of sinners. So so sinner is an interesting word. It means to miss a target. We're all sinners, of course. And we sin in two ways. There's sins of commission where we do something wrong, which tends to be the way we talk about sin. But then there's sins of omission where we simply don't do what is right. 
And in that way, we are, when we are born, by definition, sinners, which is why we needed Jesus to come and actually save us from the way of sinners. And so he's saying, you want to be the prosperous person? You want to be the person who has righteousness? You're someone who actually doesn't sit in the council of the wicked or uh, walk in it, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The seat of scoffers. That, that, that's someone who just gets so embedded in sin and mockery and negativity that they can't even feel the positive, beautiful, loving nature of God anymore. They can't actually even feel it. And so most people forget this and they just lapse into the ways of the world. And what the Psalms is doing is coming at us and saying, no, you know what the solution to all this is? Delighting in the law of the Lord. Meaning what? That your whole life becomes a life of worship and prayer and commitment. You actually delight and love the law of the Lord versus the law of the world. That's the whole point. That you become the kind of person you agree. Literally, it's, um, this is what's beautiful about it. Like when you put all of this in the context of the culture that we live in, it means prayer and worship isn't some cute little thing you do. Karl Barth once said that the posture of rebellion is folded hands. That your prayer life and your worship life and your praise life is the definition of all reality. Why? And that's what the book of Psalms, of course, is. It's pointing you toward why. Here's what Eugene Peterson says. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship is the time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God, not because he's confined to time and place, but because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance of attending to him at all at other times and in other places. And so what's he saying? He's saying, look, you make the counsel, but his delight, this is the one who wants to prosper, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night on it. So meditate, this is the word, um, it's literally in the Hebrew, it's like he murmurs the, the law of God, the, the, the scriptures, he, he just murmurs it in his life constantly. Like when I read, uh, it drives my wife crazy because I don't just read, like if she's sitting beside me in bed, okay, and I'm reading a book, she reads it in dead silence in her brain. I'm one of those people who's like, nations plot themselves together. She's like, you stop. Sorry. And this is the laugh, the derision of the cord and the fury. What? Shut up! Because I murmur stuff. I can't just keep it in my brain. He's saying, the life of the righteous man is someone who murmurs the law of God day and night. Like, when's the last time you're sitting around with your friends? Listen to me, honestly, listen. And you just went, you know, I was reading the word of God this week, and here's what it taught me. Hey, I know we're talking about so-and-so and this and that structure and this political thing, but the you know what I was reading in the Bible this week and it showed me this? Like, is that your life? You murmur it out day and night. It just comes off of you like you breathe it. That's what I'm saying. This rather than the laws of the world, the wicked of the council. I was listening to my wife. She spoke at the women's conference last week and she was talking about how we fight with the messages of the world 
constantly coming at us and that we need to allow the reality of the scriptures to overwhelm us. And she gave some great examples I thought were so interesting for women. She talked about the Kardashians and how women, listen, you look at the Kardashians, many of you, and you go, that's what a woman is. That's what I want to look like. This is what I want. And the reality is you begin, even if you pretend that's not true, you begin to believe that in your brain. And yet, when the law, you're someone who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, your definitions of womanhood begin to change. You're vastly different because your beauty, as First Peter 3 talks about, is on the inside, not on the outside. It's not how you look. It's not the things about your... See, even for guys, guys begin to define success by, man, I got lots of money. I dress nice. I drive a nice car. He's going, you meditate on the law of God day and night. Those are not going to be your definitions, bro, of success and something to strive after. Because how many guys do I know who are rich and have, you know, but they're boring. It's like Z-Town. They drive a nice car, but my gosh, 30 seconds with them. I'm ready. Right? Oh, but I got to have a six-pack because men's health tells me I got... You have a six-pack. Listen, I know a lot of guys with six-packs, and they're duds. Boring. Listen. I mean, I have one, but I'm going to show you. Wrong with you. These are definitions of reality that have nothing to do with the Scriptures. You become someone defined against the larger empire that you live in, the larger culture that you function in. And he says, this person prospers. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Are you someone planted by streams of water where you actually have a flourishing life? Here's what C.S. Lewis says, and I'll pray for you. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to it, or even into the thing that has them. Those things are not a sort of prize, which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone, They're a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And if you're close to it, the spring will wet you. If you're not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Father, my prayer is that in the midst of all of this, this psalm out of the gate, would change us at a heart level and we'd have the courage to be the kinds of people who actually take it in to ourselves and say, my gosh, I don't even know how I'm defined. I've got prosperity definitions wrong. I've got values wrong. I wanna be someone who actually follows what God wants me to do in every area of my life and I pray that in this moment that you would speak Holy Spirit to people in this room whether they know you or not and realize that sometimes when we hear this list of the way the righteous man is supposed to be, we begin to think, well, that's not me. And the beauty of this thing is like echoing out to, yeah, but there was one who came and lived a perfect life for you. He never sat in the seat of scoffers and mockers or stood in the way of sinners or walked 
with wicked in the context of his own wickedness. Never did he ever take the counsel of the wicked, ever. His name is Jesus, and he was perfect for us in our place. So when we begin to feel the weight of stuff we couldn't do, God let us realize you did it for us, and now we gotta trust to his righteousness on our behalf. Let us do that, Lord Jesus, do that among us. In your name we pray, amen.